If you would turn back with me this morning to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. The Lord Jesus Christ in verse 44 as he concludes this portion of his Sermon on the Mount says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. When we read verses like verse 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, we realize that we will not this side of glory achieve what the Lord has commanded. In 1 Peter chapter 1, about verse 15 and 16, Peter says, as the Lord had said, Be holy, even as I am holy. That should always be the goal. That should be what we strive towards. But in this particular verse, the context is limited. Um, Jesus is saying that we're to love as God the Father loves. That's what's under consideration here. And he says, ye have heard that it had been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. This is the one time that actually, as you go back to the Old Testament and read what Moses commanded, only part of this is actually expressed. Moses was never told by God to tell the children of Israel to hate their enemy. Now in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, he does tell them that they're to love their neighbor. He also tells them they're not to bear or hold grudges. But it had become um, actually commendable by the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ to actually despise the enemies of Israel. Now, there's some understanding of that. Here they are occupied by a foreign nation. They're, they're ruled now by the the Roman Empire. Here they are under control by the government of another people. And so here there are soldiers going about that are not their countrymen. They're being oppressed. Uh, they don't have the same freedoms they once enjoyed. And so it's somewhat understandable why they would at least in that specific time hate what they considered their enemies. But the Lord will make it clear that uh, that's not the way that we're to behave. And we'll find examples of that throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. So again, Jesus says, ye have heard that it had been said. Now they haven't read this. This is only things they have been told. They can't go into the Old Testament and find where they're supposed to hate their enemies in general. Now that said, we will find that the Lord gave specific commandment about a particular people that the children of Israel were to never pray for them to prosper. And that was the Amalekites. You'll find in the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus that the children of Israel, they were attacked in a very uh, underhanded way by the Amalekites. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, as God reminds the children of Israel of this experience not long before the death of Moses, He tells them specifically why there's never to be peace between the children of Israel and the Amalekites. Say, why would God not forgive them of what they have done? If you read what they did, it says they came from behind and they attacked those who were feeble, the elderly, and also the young. So here they were very unmerciful in the way that they came against the children of Israel. And so God determined that there was never to be peace between the children of Israel and the Amalekites. In fact, they were to be utterly destroyed. In fact, we'll find that the last straw for King Saul, the very last thing that God would tolerate about this man, and he would not be obedient to the command of God to destroy the Amalekites, both man and woman, boy and girl, and every beast that belonged to them. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he gives the command to go out to battle, but he alters the command of God. And we'll find that the king is spared, and a certain sect among the Amalekites are likewise spared, along with their goods and along with their beasts. And as Samuel comes on the scene and begins to question Saul about this, you'll find that Saul begins to make excuse, how that they did this really to make an offering to the Lord. Well, it wasn't about that at all. Saul, he beheld goods there and he beheld wealth and he didn't see the sense in destroying all of that and he wanted it for himself. And so we find that from that point forward, the heart of God turned away from Saul. It'll be in the very next chapter that Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse and there David is informed that he will be the king over Israel. Later in 1 Kings chapter 31, Saul is slain. Saul is shot in battle with an arrow and he knows he's dying. And he asks his armor bearer to slay him with the sword. And the armor bearer, he can't stand to do so, so he will not. So instead, he falls upon his own sword. And then you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and there's a young man that comes and gives a report to David. It's not fully honest. Uh, it's a report that tells what occurred, but it adds some details that weren't correct. See, this young man that comes to David thinks he'll curry favor with the new king if he lets him know that he was the one that actually put him finally to death. And this young man is an Amalekite. <laughs> an Amalekite is the one that gives the report of the death of Saul. See, if Saul had done what he was supposed to do, uh, things might have turned out very, very different in his life. But that's the only occasion where you'll find that God holds anger consistently against a people. And we can understand why, again, when we read Deuteronomy chapter 25 and see that they attacked the feeble among the children of Israel. They didn't come as men of war and attack the valiant men of Israel at the front of the group of people. They waited until they had passed by and then they snuck in and began to attack those who were elderly and those who were young. So Jesus says, ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, once again, the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest commentator on his own law. If you want to know about the law of Moses, who was better to ask while he was on the face of the earth than the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the one who gave the law. It was given to Moses by God. He's the son of God. He knew every expression of the law. He knew the law to a jot and to a tittle. He knew the intention of the law. He knew the heart of the law. He knew the letter of the law. He was not ignorant in any point of the law. He had never twisted the law. He never used it for his own ends. 
He didn't use it for his own gain. He didn't use it to prop himself up, and he didn't use it to antagonize uh, other individuals. But you'll find that those that he faced in this world did those very things. They twisted the law for their benefit. They twisted the law to exalt themselves, and they also used the law in an effort to, uh, many times, to uh, constrain the Lord from doing the great work that he was doing here upon the face of the earth. But that's not how Jesus ever behaved. Jesus had every authority to give us the interpretation of the law. I can go back and I can read the Old Testament law and there's things about it I understand, some things I do not. Uh, but the best thing I can do is then come to the New Testament and try to find what the New Testament says about the law of Moses so that hopefully I might understand it better. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is setting the record straight of what the law of Moses was intended for. And he's also letting them know where they had misconstrued it, sometimes on purpose, maybe sometimes not, but either way it had been misconstrued and he's straightening it out. He's setting the facts straight for these folks. So he says, ye have heard that it have been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Notice verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now when Jesus says that ye may be the children of your father, he's not saying if you don't do this, you're not his children. We do not become the sons of God by imitating God. We come, become the sons of God because of a heavenly birth that happens when the Spirit of God enters into the child of God and makes us partakers of the divine nature. But when you and I behave as God, we show to others that we are the sons of our Father. Uh, one of the best ways to show you're a disciple is obviously uh, to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and do as he does. Notice what he says, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. And then notice this, for he maketh, I love this, his son. Not just the son, but he maketh his son. He's letting the world know who this world belongs to. He says the sun which shines upon us, that belongs to the Father. It's his. He made it. He's the one who sustains it. It belongs to him. It's not ours. It's not just creations. It's the Lord's. He says, for he maketh his son to just rise on the evil and on the good. And he also sent it rain on the just and on the unjust. Why does Jesus say this in the midst of all this? God knows that the wicked are going to be banished to hell. However, in spite of that, there's still goodness that even the wicked of this world receive because God makes his son to shine both on uh, the evil and on the good. He also sends his rain on the just and the unjust. You may say, well, he can't make it shine in one place and not another. I can show you where he did. I can show you in the book of Exodus where it was dark over all of Egypt except one little spot called Goshen. In Goshen, the sun did shine. Uh, but in all the rest of Egypt, the blackness was so thick, it could be felt. They couldn't even see their own hands before their face. So don't say that God is restrained, uh, that he has to make his sun shine upon all. So you and I were to show goodness, whether uh, someone is righteous or whether they're not. You say, well, of course he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. Now some insert another word, alike, that doesn't say that. It just says he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And he does. 
I remember many times in my youth watching the rain come and then being so hopeful. <laughs> um, you know, we've had a fairly dry summer here. This, they say we're in still uh, severe drought conditions in this particular portion of Florida. This, folks, is not severe drought. Uh, now, maybe by our standards it is. I've told you before what I've seen uh, in West Texas, severe drought, when it comes to a point that there, there's just no grass. It's finally, as the Bible says, it has withered away. I've seen cracks open up in the ground wide enough for your foot to fall into if you weren't careful. And so there were times that uh, I would see rain come and I was ever so grateful to see it come and then it was just like it hit a wall and it stopped right there. Uh, even in the word of God, you'll find where it came to a, a certain fence row and the rain stopped. So don't think that God is required to send his rain on the just and the unjust. He could send it upon just you and then an unjust neighbor down the road, he could keep it from going to his home. Uh, occasionally I tease Brother Donald that he's on the wrong side of County Road 39. I'll ask him, did you get any rain last night? No, didn't get any. Well, we got a couple inches and no, we didn't get it. Well, he's just on the wrong side of, uh, but uh, of course, just teasing. But God is not required and God is able to uh, give plenty to the righteous and make the wicked have none. But that's not how God does. God showers rain upon the just and the unjust, he causeth his son, as he says, to rise on the evil and on the good. And the point is, is that here in nature, even the wicked enjoy the blessings of providence, at least to that extent. And if God can show his, uh, cause his son to shine upon them and send his rain toward them, we can show Christian kindness even to the wicked. So he says, I say unto you, verse 44, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Say, so I just can't do what Jesus says in this verse. I realize by nature you cannot, neither can I. But with the grace of God and the help of God and the strength of God, it can be done. Again, he says, here's what you and I are to do. We're to love our enemies. So, well, they're not all that lovable. Well, you weren't either. <laughs> Read Romans chapter 5 and what the Apostle Paul says about the grace of God. He says in verse 5 of Romans 5, he says, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love. That means he extended it. He put it upon us. He placed it within us. He commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That verse says we were not lovable uh, when God commended his love toward us. He says much more than being now justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The life of Jesus now gives us life, and we're saved by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what he says, for if when we were 
enemies. <laughs> we were reconciled to God. How? Because we became the friends of God that all of a sudden uh, we took our ire and our anger and our hatred against God and all of a sudden we turned that energy uh, towards good to God and became lovers of God all on our own. No, that's not how it occurred. He makes it very clear that you and I were enemies when we were reconciled. Up to the very moment that we were reconciled, we were still the enemies of God. And if God, who is holy and without sin, uh, is not stained with any corruption whatsoever, could be reconciled with sinners, then certainly we uh, can be the friends of our enemies. We can love them who would do us wrong. We had wronged God deeply. So deeply it required the death of his son. Notice again he says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of his son. Much more being reconciled we be, shall be saved by his life. So Jesus says, and he knew, he knew expressly that when he went to the cross of Calvary, there would be present enemies against him that he would be dying for. He knew that the thief on the cross that started out cursing him, he was bearing his sins as he was on the cross, who in his body bear our sins on the tree. So here is Jesus on the tree bearing our sins, and by the last account of that man speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus was dying for him. Because in one breath we find that man cursing the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet while he's cursing the Lord Jesus Christ, how is Jesus loving him? He's dying for that man in that moment while that man is cursing him. And yet in a few moments time, that man goes from cursing him. And when the other malefactor begins to speak up again against the Lord Jesus Christ, he lets him know that they're there justifiably. That they're there, they're condemned because they've done wrong. He says, but this man had done nothing amiss. How did he know that? <laughs> How did he go from cursing Jesus to defending the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? The only way that could have happened is the direct work of the Holy Spirit uh, regenerating that man and that man going from a death in sin to a life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he turns to the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Number one, how did he know he was Lord? Number two, how did he know he, he was a king? And how did he know he had a kingdom that he wanted to be a part of? Because the Holy Ghost had revealed that unto that man. And that man knew that that was his Lord. And that was his king. And there was a kingdom somewhere that was desirable to dwell in. And so he begged the Lord in his dying breath to remember me when you come into your kingdom. And some of the most blessed words in all the word of God, Jesus says to him, Verily, verily, that means truly, truly, this can be trusted. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that today... <laughs> Not at the end of time, not after some time spent in a holding place called purgatory, he says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I love how Jesus describes his kingdom where that man wanted to be. He says, you remember me when you come to your kingdom. He says, I'll remember you. And today, together, we'll be in paradise. So Jesus was loving his enemy. Here was a man who was cursing him while Jesus was dying for him. And yet even in that, Jesus ignored the cursing and loved him anyway. And then before long, that man struck by the Spirit of God begins to love the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, it's again, I say unto you, love your enemies. 
Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. In the Old Testament, we find an experience that Elisha has with the king of Syria and the army of Syria, and then later he will have with the king of Israel himself. In 2 Kings chapter 6, a lot of us remember the story how that the king of Assyria, by the name of Benadad, is wanting to slaughter the king of Israel. He wants to put out that army for good. The problem is there's a prophet named Elisha, and every time Benadad will begin to make plans to destroy the Israelites, we'll find that Elisha sends word to the king and just tells him what to avoid, where not to go. And so every time the king of uh, Syria sets up the battle already to go, what happens? Israel's just not there. He finally decides there must be a spy in his bedchamber, in his bedroom. Somebody in here who's in my war council, they know my battle plans and they're going and they're telling the king of Israel. That's the only, I mean, that's the only thing you could surmise, right? I mean, what else could you uh, think was going on? That's what I would think. So finally, one of his servants speaks up and says, Know my Lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. This is in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 12. He says, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. Imagine this, an entire army is sent to capture one man. An army great enough to surround and besiege the city of Dothan. Again, it says that there were horses and chariots and a great host. It says in verse 15, When the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? In other words, what in the world are we going to do about this? How can we escape? We're stuck here. There's no way out. And he answered and says, Fear not. And I love that in the word of God, when we're told not to be afraid, there's a reason given for us not to be afraid. He says, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Most of the time, that's most of the story we read about and go on and talk about something else. So here are blind soldiers unable to come and take this man and fetch him and bring him back to the king of Syria. So it says in verse 19 that Elisha said unto them, <laughs> if you think there's no humor in the Bible, just read it better. Elisha says unto them, this is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me. Now, they don't even know who they're following. So here they are blind. Elisha, he knows that he's the man they're after. He says, you're not in the right place. This wasn't the right way. This isn't the right town. Follow me. 
I'll bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. What's in Samaria? The king of Israel. That's who they're really after. They want the king of Israel. To get to the king of Israel, though, they needed to get rid of Elisha. So what does Elisha do? He brings them right into uh, Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Now before this happens, they get into Samaria, and Elisha says to the Lord, Open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Now typically, and, and it'll happen later, they wouldn't come into the middle of town. They would besiege the city and cut off all goods. So no food can come in. No commerce can occur. And they will starve out the people. And they're going to do that later in this very chapter. But in this moment, here they are in the middle of the city. The problem with that is, is now they've got the, uh, the, the army of Israel right there on top of it. They can't do anything. They're stuck here. Uh, here they go to Dothan, and they think they've got Elisha stuck in Dothan, and now look how the tables have turned. Here they are stuck in the city of the king that they want to slay. And now the king, now talk about loving your enemies and praying for them that would do you evil and, do, uh, and blessing them which would uh, persecute you or curse you. Notice what Elisha does. He does precisely what Jesus commanded there in Matthew chapter 5. The king of Israel, now... I'm a little surprised that he would actually ask permission if Elisha to slay these men, but he asks. He says, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldst thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision. Amazingly, he, he obeys. He prepared great provision for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no, no more into the land of Israel. That means for a time. <laughs> so here, Elisha had the opportunity to put this people to death. This army could have been wiped out. But instead, what does he say? If you had caught them alive in battle with the bow and with the sword, would you have slain them? No, you would have rounded them up as prisoners of war and you would have brought them here. So here they are. Here's what you do. You feed them and you give them to drink and you send them home. Now, I probably would have fed them. <laughs> I probably would have given them to drink, but I say, we're not sending them back home. As soon as they get back home, they're going to join right back up. And they probably did. But they, they leave. Now... They were changed to a point, but the king of Syria was not. So it says, there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head sold for four core pieces of silver, 80 pieces of silver for an ass's head. This is to eat. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Think about how bad it's getting what they're buying to eat. An ass's head and dove's dung. And it is pricey. You think going to the grocery store today is bad. And I know it is. I know what our grocery bill is every month. Uh, and it's uh, not too good and it seems to be getting worse. But it's nothing like this. I, I mean, we're not to that point. Uh, there's some things that I would eat it if I had to and some other things I, I don't think I ever could. But here's notice again what they're eating. 
So here there is this great famine, and now the city is besieged on top of that. And here they are in terrible, terrible conditions. Here's how bad it gets. It comes to pass, verse 26, that the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall. There cried a woman unto him, saying, Help my Lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? If God hasn't stepped in at this point, what can I do? Am I going to help you out of the barn floor, out of the wine press? I don't have anything more than what you have, is what he's letting her know. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. This is sickening. But it happened. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. You know, God told him in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 53, that if they were not faithful to him, that this is exactly what would happen. They would eat of their own flesh, meaning of their own descendants. And now it's, this is how bad it is in the city of Samaria, the capital of the nation of Israel. So it came to pass that when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by upon the wall and the people looked and beheld he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. What does God, uh, this man, he blames Elisha for this turn of events. But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him, and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See ye how this son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head. Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door, and hold him fast at the door. It is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And then notice what the king himself says. Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? He blames Elisha at first and then he stops and he recognizes this isn't Elisha's fault. This evil, this judgment, this affliction, this is from God. Now does he stop what was about to occur? He does not. But notice before we got there though, Elisha shows great compassion on the very men that had God not blinded them at Dothan would have taken him to the king of Syria who most likely would have taken his life. What does he do? He brings them miraculously into the city of Samaria, to the capital of Israel, right to the king, hands them over to the king, and then when the king says, shall we smite them? He says, no, you feed them, you give them water, and you send them home. And so that's exactly what the king does. And now this great famine comes upon them. They're besieged. And most likely the very men that have been fed and watered by the king of Israel are out there surrounding the city of Samaria as they're besieged to the point now that one woman is giving her son to be boiled, to be eaten, and another woman won't keep her word and hides her son. And now here is the king over such a city, ruling over such a people, and is so afflicted by this, he's so angry at his friend. Uh, here is Elisha who loved his enemies enough to give them food and drink and send them home. But here's the king who should have loved his friend, but instead he wants him put to death. But Elisha is blessed of God. And he lets them know what's going to happen. He says, tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a sequel and two measures of barley for a sequel in the gate of Samaria. You know what he's saying? 
The economic conditions in the city of Samaria are going to be in such reverse it won't be believable. That before, when they were buying an ass's head and dove's dung to eat for unspeakable amounts of money, he says tomorrow about this time, he says they're going to eat, they'll buy flour, they'll buy barley for minuscule amounts. It's amazing how quickly economies can turn. Very rarely do they turn for the good that quickly. <laughs> I mean, as you read the history of the Great Depression that hit the United States of America, it took a long time to climb out of that. A lot of times we think back to 2008, and um, now a lot of times people forget how quickly in 2009 a lot of things did turn around, especially in the stock market and a lot of retirement accounts. But we focus on how the housing industry was so hit and how many years it took for that to recover. And, and a lot of that did take a Most of the time, economic recovery takes a long time. And that's why the servant of Elisha, he can't believe it. Notice what he goes on to say. He said, behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? In other words, the city's besieged. The only way this can happen is if God opens up the windows of heaven and rains it down. And number one, that's just not going to happen. Uh, but that's the only way this could happen is what the servant is saying. The only way that Samaria can be so blessed is if God rains this all down directly. It can't come from without. Why? Because there's an enemy there. There's an army besieging the city. It can't come in through the gates. It's got to come from above. It'll come from above, but not in the way that this man is thinking. Uh, to tell the rest of the story, Elisha, he, he says there's going to be four leprous men. They're going to come to Samaria, and as they do, they come to the city. And at first, they, they basically, we're going to die either way. We can just go on into the city. We, or the Samarians, or the, yeah, those, the Syrians, excuse me, they're, they're going to slay us, whatever happens, let's go. And as they come upon the scene of the, the encampment of the Syrians, it's empty. They're gone. They've all left. The Lord made them hear the sound of a host. And the Syrians were so affrighted, they left everything right where it was, and they hightailed it back home. So all of a sudden, these four leprous men are eating like they've never eaten before. And then it dawns on them that they ought to tell the folks in the city what's out here, and first, when the people in the city hear about it, it's unbelievable. They just can't believe that it's this way, but sure enough, it is, and the city is restored. The Lord blesses them abundantly, and all this started out because Elisha had been faithful to those men that would have taken his life. But he says, no, you feed them, you give them water, you send them home. And now, when the king would have taken Elisha's life, God intervenes, and these four leprous men come and hear the Syrians, hear the, the, the noise of war, and they flee. And the children of Israel, they're able to eat plenty. It's amazing what happens when God's people are simply faithful to what the Word of God commands us to do. So again, Jesus says, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus did, and with the grace and help of God, so can we. He says that you may be the children of your father once again, showing that you are his children by behavior. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. 
Then he says, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Jesus will address this in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 14, he's invited a second time to the house of a Pharisee. Notice it says in verse 1, It came to pass as he went to the house of one of the chief Pharisees, not just a Pharisee, but a chief Pharisee, to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. Now while they're there, in verse 7, in this man's dining room, Jesus in verse 7 puts forth a parable to those which were bidden. He says, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, in other words, Obviously, the dining banquet hall was not just one big room. Say maybe there was a center room, but there were side rooms, ante rooms, if you will. And so depending on how socially acceptable you were is where you got placed. I mean, if you were high up in the community, you were going to be right there at the main table. If you didn't matter much, you're going to be pushed off into a corner somewhere like the kids' table at Thanksgiving. Uh, that's basically what happened. Notice, when, and Jesus is watching all this. He sees what's going on. He says, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lower room. He says, But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shall thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee for whosoever exalted himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted now he was teaching a great lesson there but then notice the next lesson verse 12 then said he also to him that bade him now jesus is speaking to the man who's given the invitation you know usually if i have an invitation to go eat somewhere i try to be very courteous to the person who's extended the invitation if i see things out of order things may be a little wrong I'm probably not going to point it out. That's not how Jesus was. Then said he also to him that bade him, when thou makest a dinner or a supper. He says, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense, that means repayment, be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Remember what Jesus said in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things that he's going to say, he says, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he's going to follow that up with a list of things that we did, and we're going to stand there in amazement saying, Lord, when did we these things? He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. He's talking about you and I having the responsibility to reach out to those who are beneath us in their uh, financial standing and how they do and fare in this world. It's very easy to invite somebody to our home that can return the invitation. Jesus is telling this man who's invited him to his home, he says, what good was that? He says, they can repay you anytime. He says, here's what you should have done. You should have called the, the, the lame, the poor, the maimed, and the blind. Uh, those that this Pharisee would have nothing to do with. He said, that's exactly the type of person you should have had over uh, for dinner tonight. See, Jesus was criticized. Why? Because he ate with publicans 
and sinners. Uh, they despised that about the Lord Jesus Christ. They took a supper meal like this and this was an opportunity to take advantage of their social standing and to build up the influence they had with others in the community. They weren't going to waste such an opportunity as that by bringing in uh, the lowly of this world. Uh, they were not going to be mindful of them. They didn't care about them. But the Lord Jesus Christ showed in His earthly ministry that He was very mindful and very touched by those who were afflicted in this world. And you and I also should be so moved. So back in Matthew chapter 5, He makes it again clear that you and I, if we love those that love us in return, if we salute those who salute us in return, He says, how are we any different than how even the wicked in this world behave? The wicked, they salute their own. The wicked invite their own. That's how they behave as well. He says, here's how you'll show a difference. He says, you'll invite folks that are, that are downtrodden, that are discouraged, that are beaten up by sin and Satan, that truly need the encouragement and the strength and the help that the child of God can provide. And Jesus had said in verse 30, verse 43, thou shalt love thy neighbor. He says, that's what you've heard. And hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. And he says, thou shalt love thy neighbor. Turn to Luke, the 10th chapter. I think you all know the story well, but it still bears being reminded of. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know if this is the rich young ruler who had asked the same question or if this is a different individual. It really doesn't matter. The question, notice, was made in a way to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? So Jesus just responds... Well, what does the law say? How do you read the law? In other words, by the law, how are you going to be, uh, how are you going to have eternal life? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. So the man answered their question correctly. He says, I'm supposed to love the Lord with all that I am. And secondly, I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself. Jesus says, thou hast answered right. This do, thou shalt live. But notice this, but he, <laughs> willing to justify himself. In other words, he hadn't done what he just quoted he wants to justify himself. And who is my neighbor? Okay, Jesus. I think I've done like I'm supposed to, but down deep he knew better. He says, so you tell me who my neighbor is. So Jesus answered said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. He says, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. It's not as though the priest and the Levite didn't take notice, didn't see him because he's down in a the ditch. They saw him. Notice what it says about the Levite. When he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Here is an individual. We don't know anything about his background except he fell among thieves. This isn't something that he brought himself into. He fell among thieves. They stripped him of his raiment. They wounded him. And they wounded him to the point that he was half dead. He was dying here. And notice who it was that first came by. By chance, a priest comes by. A certain priest. We don't know what his name was. It doesn't matter. But when he saw him, what does he do? He goes by on the other side of the road. He doesn't want to be sullied by this man. He doesn't go down to the ditch where the man is. He's not going to be touched by that. And so then a Levite, okay, so you would think, well, a priest, certainly a priest would have compassion upon this individual. You know, the priests were religious individuals. They were teachers of divine uh, uh, thoughts and teaching. They were the teachers of the Word of God. And instead of executing the Word of God in the life of this man, what does he do? He circles round about him and goes on about his journey. That wasn't his neighbor, so he didn't have to love him in his own mind. And then a Levite. A Levite, of course, was one that the priest came from. They were of the tribe of Levite. And there were priests that communicated the law and there were Levites that attended to the things concerning the law. So another religious individual, he goes by. But then a certain Samaritan. Now if you read in John the fourth chapter about Samaritans in the days of Jesus, a Samaritan was somebody who was had the blood of a Hebrew and the blood of a Gentile. They were mixed raced, viewed as dogs by the Israelites. In some ways, they viewed them lower than a Gentile because here they were a mixed race. And so they were despised. So when Jesus is saying this to this lawyer, of all the people, now, let me say this very quickly about parables. Parables are a story given to teach a truth. But I don't think that when Jesus gave parables that he, I don't think he ever made them up. See, there's times that I'm given an analogy and I may conjure up a story that illustrates uh, what I'm trying to teach. I remember uh, years ago, uh, I was in the barn of Brother Sonny Piles. We were talking and, you know, Brother Sonny had an illustration for just about any point he wanted to make. I, he always had a story that went along with it, and it taught the lesson, and I was impressed by that. Of course, I was very young in the ministry. I didn't have any stories yet. They're accumulating now. Um, I'm still not where he was at, but I've got a bunch. But back then, I didn't have very many. I had to make up stories to illustrate points. So finally, I said, Brother Sonny, I said, you have a personal story that you're aware of to illustrate every point I've ever heard you make. How did you do that? He said, another young preacher asked me that one time, and I told him, I get them from life, so get a life. <laughs> so I got the point. He was telling me, get a life. Uh, so even in his answer, here he used some comedy to, you know, impress upon me, just engage in life, and by living, you'll have the sermon illustrations. If a man like Brother Sonny could have all the illustrations that he had in his bag to pull out to... Do you think Jesus ever had to make any up? I don't think he did. I think every parable Jesus ever gave, I think, was a real story that Jesus was pulling because he knows all stories of all men throughout all history. And so he knows everything that's ever happened. So I think when Jesus gave a parable, I believe they were 
real life events that occurred. But it, clearly it's teaching a moral truth. So when Jesus says, but a certain Samaritan, as soon as that word Samaritan came out of his mouth, I guarantee you that lawyer recoiled. A Samaritan? The priest wouldn't touch this man. The Levite wouldn't touch this man. But notice what this certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, notice this, he spends the night with him to make sure this man who was half dead uh, has someone to sit with him through the night. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Then he says, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Who was the neighbor? Obviously the Samaritan was. He said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. If that was right for that lawyer to go and do likewise, is it not right for you and I uh, to do the same? That when we see someone in our experience that is uh, uh, beaten and downtrodden, uh, those who are uh, folks that in our nature we would want nothing to do with, is it right to be like the priest and just walk on by? Is it right to be uh, like the Levite and go and look upon it a moment and then say, well, that's really not my problem and pass on by? That's not how the Lord Jesus dealt with you and me. Uh, you and I, we didn't just fall among thieves. Uh, we plunged ourselves to a death in sin. Uh, by, I realize that we were born that way, but we also, uh, by our own activity, uh, he says in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, that death passed upon all life, for that all have sinned. You can't just say, well, it's not my fault. Adam did it, and I can't control it. No, he says death passed upon all. Why? Because all have sinned. What did Jesus do? He came to where we were. He didn't say, get yourself out of the ditch. Come up to this point and I'll meet you at some halfway point so I don't have to be sullied. No, the creator became part of his creation. The king came and lived as a pauper. The one who was holy above all came and lived and dwelt among sinners the one upon whom righteousness it cannot even be imagined how godly and how righteous and how holy he is. He was willing for a time to enshroud that in his humanity and cover that over so that we could not see that in its fullness. Why? So that he could come to where we were. Not so that uh, he would command us to come someplace in the middle so he wouldn't be so... No, he was willing uh, to take upon him the nature, not of angels, but the seed of Abraham so that he would become one of us, be like unto his brethren. Why? So that he should taste death for every man. For every one of his children he would taste death. That means he would would experience death so that you and I who are all our lifetimes subject to bondage through the fear of death would not have to be afraid of death any longer he went down into the ditch where you and I were laying and we weren't just half dead we were dead but thanks be to God the Lord Jesus Christ he did more than what the Samaritan did that Samaritan was a great man a godly man Again, here he brings him to the end. After he binds his wounds, he handles this man. 
cleans him, dresses him, puts the man on his own beast and walks so that that man can comfortably ride in the best mode of transportation that the man had, brings him to the inn, stays with him through the night, pays the bill, and tells the innkeeper, you take care of him. And if what I've provided isn't enough, I'll pay the rest when I come back through. And there that man was provided for. So again, the Lord Jesus Christ says, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And then as we said at the beginning, in verse 48, he says, Be ye therefore perfect. Understand, perfect typically means complete. To be full. He says, Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Our Father in heaven is perfect in his love towards people that are completely undeserving of the least of his love. You and I have the Christian responsibility then to identify ourselves as the children of the Father by imitating him and loving even those who hate us, who would curse us, who would despitefully use us, and who would persecute us. They did all that to the Lord Jesus Christ, as did we. And in spite of that, he loved us to the point of death, so that we, through his life, would also have life with him forevermore. And now while we live in this life, we're to imitate him in the way we behave towards those that we encounter, whether it be in a good way or whether especially it be in a way that's negative, we have the responsibility to react the way that Jesus would react. A few years ago, a lot of folks were wearing wristbands. There were keychains, all sorts of stuff with four letters and a question mark. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Became a fad. It's passed away. It did provoke, I believe, a good question. And something that we ought to ask ourselves, especially in interactions with other people. What would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? That might govern us a whole lot better in the way we react and also the way that we act with those that we encounter in the church and in this world while we live. May God bless you today. As our